Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Everybody gets nervous when you start talking about money, especially in church. Someone said to me, really, you want to talk about money just a couple weeks before you have a vote coming up? Is that wise? You know, church has a reputation sometimes for just being just concerned about money. People make accusations. It's all the church thinks about. They just want our money. And quite frankly, there are times in history when the church has acted that way. Where it it seemed very clear that the primary reason the church existed was to take money from people. And because of that, we have gone to the other extreme and now we don't talk about money much at all. We are afraid of offending people. It's private. It's personal. It's, it's not a, uh, an appropriate issue to talk about. But when you read the scriptures, you find all kinds of times when it talks about money. Just looking at the words like rich, poor, gifts, giving, money, it's over 700 times in scripture. Those words are used. And we may not talk about it a lot, but God is very interested in talking to us about money. Because there is something about what we do with our possessions, how we accumulate them, how we distribute them. There's something about that that is directly tied to our spiritual life and our journey with Christ. And one of the examples that we find here is the places where we find the scriptures talking about money is this passage we've just read about the woman, the widow in the temple. As I understand it, the temple had, in the court of women, had 13 receptacles and they sort of looked like trumpets, so they called them trumpets and people would put their money into those. They were made of metal And, of course, in those days, they didn't have money made of bills like we do. It was all coinage. And the more more value a coin had, the heavier it was. And so if you threw a coin in that was worth a lot, it made a lot of noise. And if you threw in a coin that didn't weigh much, it didn't make much noise. And it was a means that people would use for, for others to say, wow, look at them. They're giving a lot. Clang, clang. And, they, you know, of course, you don't just clang it and run. You clang and stand because you want people to know, look what I gave. The people who give and run are the people like this widow whose gifts, these two coins, mean the word means thin ones. And the two of them together don't make up half a penny. And I can almost see her trying to, as surreptitiously as possible, drop those coins in so that no one knows, and no one will even hear that little tiny sound of these thin little basically worthless coins and Jesus says she's got it she understands the economics of the kingdom better than everyone else who's come in and made loud noises with their gifts now it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus would say these kinds of things he does it all the time You know, if you want to be first, you should be last. 
if you're going to lead, you have to serve. If you want to be in my kingdom, you become like a little child. This is the message that Jesus keeps sending over and over again. He keeps turning everything on its head. And economics is one of those things as well. The world, the world of economics is, is run by the rich. And it's run for the rich. And that's the way it's always been. The rich make the decisions. And, and consequently, by and large, the rich benefit from the decisions that are made about economics. How many times have all of us thought to ourselves, man, they just, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, right? It seems to be the way of culture. It's the way things operate. No one says, hey, let's ask the poor how to figure out what we should do next in the economy. And yet, Jesus says, we're going to turn that around. We're going to turn that on its head. And the people who are poor, this woman who is poor, the poorest of the poor, is going to teach you about what it means to understand economics in my kingdom. Now, Jesus isn't applauding her poverty. He's applauding her generosity or sacrifice. He's not saying to us, the goal is to be poor. That there's something inherently spiritual about being poor. But I think he is asking us, would we be willing to be poor? Are we willing to be generous enough, sacrificial enough, that we end up poor? Is our heart tuned that way? At the same time, Scripture is very clear that the more we have, the more risk we are at making money and possessions an idol. Though you can make it an idol whether you have a lot or a little. But it seems like the more we have, the more it gets a hold of us. And the more it constrains us and the more it enslaves us. I read about a guy who went to his pastor. I don't know if this is a true story or not. But he went to the pastor and he said, I'm having trouble tithing lately. And he, the pastor said, well, what's wrong? And he said, well, when I was making $250 a week, I gave a $25 tithe. It was great. When I, my salary went to $500 a week and I gave a $50 tithe, that was okay. But now I'm making $5,000 a week and a $500 tithe is killing me. I don't think I can do this. Will you pray for me? And the pastor says, sure, I'll pray for you. He says, Lord, please reduce Joe's income back to $500 a week so he feels a lot better about giving his tithe. I'm not sure that's the prayer he wanted prayed. There is something about the more we have, the more we want to hang on to it. But it can get us anytime, anywhere. And the question is, continually confronting us, is not how little can I give and still stay in good graces with God? But rather, how much can I give And still live. That's the attitude. That's the spirit. That we see in this woman. Who comes and drops in her two little worthless coins. You know. Her coins are not going to make a bit of difference to the temple. 
The temple's not going to stop operating if she doesn't put those two little coins in. The temple's only going to continue if the rich keep giving their gifts. They need those gifts for the temple to continue. So it's not as though Jesus is saying, you know, we don't want any rich people giving gifts. He does not condemn the rich people for their gifts. He's simply saying they're given enough. The issue is not so much even what they give as what they don't give. What's left? And he's saying they give out of their great wealth. And what they give is a drop in the bucket compared to what they have. She gives everything. and has very little, if anything, left. And the the economics of the kingdom are about sacrifice and generosity. Because it's when we, are, when we have a spirit and a heart of generosity and sacrifice, then we start understanding what the kingdom of God is about. It, we, be, we get set free from the bondage of materialism and money that continually wants to enslave us. It's the only way to be set free is to commit ourselves to be generous, to be sacrificially generous. What ends up happening is how we handle money will reveal a lot about how we feel about other people. We read the end of chapter 20. It says that the religious leaders who wear these long robes that, you know, the important people wear and they say these long prayers are stealing homes out from under widows. Why? Because they are enslaved by money. Money controls them. Everything about their life is getting more. Is it because they have none? No, they have more money than most people. They want more. And they're willing to take homes from people who have nothing in order to get more. You think about the great financial scandals of even just the last 10, 15 years. I mean, they were not perpetrated by people who have nothing. They were perpetrated by people who have more than they know what to do with. You know, Bernie Madoff didn't, didn't take that money because he couldn't eke by and didn't know where his next meal was coming from. He just wanted more. He invested himself so heavily, he, kept, he wanted more. And Ken Lay and the others at Enron, they were exceedingly rich. They wanted more. And they stole from people who had very little. And we may not do those kinds of things, but there is an attitude of spirit that's naturally in our hearts that instead of of using what we have to help people in need, we use people to get more of what we want. And Christ is calling us to the spirit of generosity that's asking not how much can I keep and how much can I convince people to give to me, but how much can I give away to others. And when I see people in need, instead of running from them because we're afraid they might take something of what we have, we're thinking, how can I possibly give away more to help them? At the same time, how we handle money speaks deeply to our view of God. 
and how we feel about God. They are connected. This passage from Malachi that we read, God accuses Israel of robbing him, and they say, how are we robbing you? What are we possibly doing? He says, what do you mean, how are you robbing me? You're not bringing your tithes and offerings into my house. And because of that, they end up in exile. They, they are, their spiritual life and what they do with what they have are intimately connected. It's a sign. And in fact, I'm convinced that what we do with money and our spirit or attitude of generosity or not is one of the most profound thermometers of our spiritual condition. It's not the only one, but it is a significant one. Because if we aren't willing to be generous, if we aren't willing to, to sacrifice, it says a couple of things. One, it says that we, aren't really, we don't really believe that what we have is from God. We have to hang on to it because we got it. We earned it. It's mine. God didn't give it to me. And so there's no sense of gratitude, no sense of thanksgiving for what God has given us. And second, we have no trust of God. We, we can't bring ourselves to believe that if we give away something, God will supply whatever hole that creates for us. So we see this direct connection. And how we, our attitude, how we handle money, it reveals what's in our hearts toward God. Ultimately, it brings us back to the cross. Because on the cross, God, give, God presents us with the, the greatest sacrifice of the world. This is not just about giving money. This is life. And everything that's wrapped up in what the cross means of God coming, becoming flesh and living among us and willingly going to the cross for our sins and being generous, living with this attitude of generosity and sacrifice, is, is in many ways it is simply an acknowledgement of gratitude. It is simply a way of, of expressing gratitude to God for what he has done for us. And the God who would willingly sacrifice himself surely is trustworthy enough that whatever we give away, he'll take care of us. I was reading recently the, um, the book by Robert Morris called The Blessed Life. It's really a fascinating book, and he, he tells stories about how God just put into his heart a, a passion for giving. And uh, he has a gift for giving, I can tell you. And you read the stories, you think, wow, that is just so far beyond me. And what interested me is that uh, we had a, I, I knew someone who knew him. And so we talked about it, and I said, is all this stuff true? And he said, that's exactly who he is. He, he, this is exactly, he's the guy he writes about. And he tells all kinds of stories about how, you know, God prompted he and his wife to give away a house to people who needed it. And how God supplied them with a different house. And they gave him away probably more than a dozen cars. And just, you know, as, as God, they're so sensitive and have this attitude of generosity that they're looking, they're just continually looking for people to give things to. And 
He said one time a God God surprised him and he said, he said Robert, I want you you to sell that van you have. And he said, I argued with the Lord because Lord, we don't sell any of this stuff. We give it away. We, we're not try, we're, we're not making money off of it. He said, Robert, I want you to sell it. And we sell it for $12,000. And he and his wife wrestled with it, but they both really sensed that's what God was telling them to do. So they said, all right, we'll sell the van. And the next day they went to church and the guy at their church said, hey, Robert, you ever think of selling that van? So I'll give you $12,000 for it. <laughs> okay, Lord. So he sold the van. He said, I don't know what to do with the money. Put it in the bank. A few weeks later, they were on a mission trip. I think we were down in Costa Rica. And the missionary there was driving around in this, this van that was, they were sure at any moment the wheels were going to fall off and the thing was just going to disintegrate. And he said, it scared him to death driving around in this thing. He said, why don't you get another van? He said, I don't have money to get another van. He said, but I, I have my eye on one and it would be perfect for our ministry. I just need some money. He said, how much do you need? $12,000. I got a van. And it's story after story of this life. And his comment is, God created us as Christians particularly, and God has gifted us and called us not to be reservoirs, but to be rivers. Not to be people who, who, are always, who get a vision for getting, but a vision for giving. And we're continually thinking, you know, how can I give more of what I have? How can I, how can I give to people who have need? Lord, I don't know if I can do it or not, but if you want me to do it, I'm there. How can we create that kind of attitude, that kind of spirit that is looking for ways to give when most of us are thinking about looking for ways to get? And to be a river instead of a reservoir. Uh, he talks in, in, in this book about uh, what he calls the ladder of giving. And in, in his opinion, there are three rungs to this ladder. There's tithes, there's offerings, and there's extravagant offerings. And I think there's some value to thinking in those terms. I, I do think that there is value in us committing first and foremost to being people who tithe. And I know some people say, well, that's an Old Testament concept. Well, there are lots of things in the Old Testament that we still do and are an important part of how we, how we live as Christians. And the very least we can do is to want to give to God 10%. And I'm convinced, and not, not everybody agrees with me, but I'm convinced that the tithe's primary purpose is to, is to support the church. I think back to this image of the widow in the temple. I don't know if she knows, but I suspect that lots of people are aware that the temple mechanism is pretty corrupt. You know, it doesn't take a genius to see how the, the high priests and the teachers of the law are bilking widows and they are stealing and they don't care a thing about the people by and large. I mean, it isn't hard to see. But even if they don't know that, Jesus knows. Jesus sees it clearly. And you would think he might go to this woman and say, hey, whoa, 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 don't give them your money. Don't put that money in there. They've rejected me. They've turned from me. Don't give that to them. That's a waste of money. But he doesn't. In fact, he calls out what she does and says, that's great. And if Jesus 
encourages giving to this corrupt institution, then how much more to the church, which is not perfect, but hopefully not corrupt. And it's when we give to the church, there is, we see things are, we, things are able to happen. Because we give to the church, we have ministries that operate. We have things that happen with our children on Wednesday nights and Sunday school and children's church and junior church and the youth group activities. And, and, and we train our children and our youth and we help each other and we have worship services. And even the mundane things of, of the paying the electric bill to turn on the lights and have heat when it's cold and snowing outside like it's doing right now. And, and all these things that, that we take for granted because we give to the church. And I mean, it's how I was raised, but I, I think that, that the tithe is, is how, we, how we maintain the ministry of the church. And because we give to the church, the church is able to give over $100,000 to organizations and people who are sharing the gospel around us and around the world in ways that we couldn't do. But I don't think it stops with tithes. Maybe the issue is that God wants to, to encourage us, to challenge us, to move beyond that into giving tithes and offerings. And those offerings we give to support missionaries and we give to support organizations that are sharing the gospel in a variety of ways all over the world and in our backyards. But the thing that I think is important is that sometimes we want to jump so high up the ladder that we fall off. I think it's just start where we are. If, if tithing has been an issue and we're not doing that, then that's the first place to start. And maybe it's 5% or a few percent, but it's something beyond what we're doing. And I recognize that some of you sitting here have very little income, especially if you're a college student, high school student. You don't have much income. But I know from my own life and in talking with so many people, that's the perfect time to begin the the habit, the duty of giving. And maybe if, if tithing is not the issue, maybe the next step is offerings or it's being offerings it's to be just more generous, more extravagant. But we're asking God, Lord, how much could you encourage me to give? How much could I trust you to give instead of asking God, please help me hang on to what I have? To live with open hands instead of clenched fists. And sometimes we think of giving as a duty. And it is an act of obedience. But it's sort of like the duty of eating. You know, we have to eat to live. If we don't eat, we, we will die. We all need to eat. But that doesn't mean we can't enjoy eating. And we like, the, sometimes one of the most enjoyable things is preparing the meal and sitting down with family and friends and we eat. And, and food is something for most of us, we don't, dread, we don't dread a meal, we anticipate a meal. Because of what the meal means and what it's going to, to, to be for us. And I think if we can think of giving as a duty in that same way, that it's, it's not something that we dread, it's something we anticipate. Because the more generous we are, the more open our hearts are. And the more open our hearts are, the more God will fill us with his spirit and, and bless us.
And it doesn't necessarily mean that God's going to bless us with a lot more of what we have. It's not a, it's not a formula where we say, okay, God, I'm giving you a dollar. I'm expecting 10 back. We just give. And as we give, as we create an attitude of, of giving, God supplies for us so that we can give more. And what we find is that there is, there is little more enjoyable, little, little more exciting than being able to give to people who are in need. And to be people who are, who are rivers through whom God gives his blessings to other people. John Ortberg says when he talks about money in his church, he often talks to people about their wallets. And sometimes he says, I have them get the wallet out and look at it and look in it to see if anybody's in there or what, you know, look through it. And at first service, someone said to me, I was waiting for you to say, what's in your wallet? Like the television commercial, but... But he said, really, if you look at it, it's just a little piece of leather. But that piece of leather is representative for so many people of everything we think in terms of success and value and worth. I, I know a guy who, who w- was raised in, in abject poverty. And when he became adult and, and, an adult and he, and he got a good job, he carried around with him a $100 bill in his wallet everywhere he went. And when he paid something or opened his wallet, he wanted to make sure everyone saw that $100 bill because that was his way of telling them, I'm successful. I carry around a $100 bill in my wallet. And it's true of a lot of us. It's the credit cards we carry or it's, it's the, the money that we have. It represents for so many of us success and value and worth. And, and we can get sucked into it so easily. And it represents the economy of the culture. But the problem is the economy of the culture doesn't lead to what we think it leads to. The economy of the culture leads to fear that what we have, we might lose. It leads to worry about what we have being taken away from us. It leads to stress and pressure that we have to keep getting more and more in order to maintain our lifestyle. The economics of the culture don't make life easier and better. They make it harder. But the economics of Christ's kingdom set us free. Because if we lose it, it was God's money to begin with. If it's taken away, it was God's possessions to begin with. And if we really believe that God is who he says he is, somehow, some way, he will supply what we need. And the truth of the matter is we all know this to be true in other areas of life. That the more we learn to trust God, the more joy we experience. So my question for each of us, as you think about this little piece of leather in your wallet your pocket or your purse or your bag or wherever you keep it, does it reflect the economics of the culture 
or the economics of Christ and the kingdom. That leads to joy and freedom and blessing and life. Heavenly Father, you know this is a hard word for me and for us. There's so much of our security that we put in what we have. We pray that you will help us to see beyond that to you. Lord, this morning, speak into our hearts about one thing, one way, one means, one act, a step of sacrificial generosity that will lead us more and more to freedom and the joy of your spirit. Give us courage to take the step. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen.